Hi, and welcome to Episode 7 of Painting the Corners, the Baseball and International Affairs Podcast. I'm your host, Lincoln Mitchell. Today we have a really excellent show. We talk a bit about MVP voting and the history of that, and we also talk some more about a topic we've covered a bit in the past, which is the ongoing Russia and Ukraine conflict. And our guests today are really experts in both of these fields, not, not both of them in both of them, but separately. Katya Soldek is our international affairs guest. She is a New York-based journalist and multimedia producer. She is the Forbes Media Editorial Director for Europe, the Middle East, Africa, and Latin America. And her work focuses on international affairs and business in emerging markets, particularly in the post-Soviet territory. During her career and with Forbes, Katya has interviewed actually an extraordinary collection of people, including Tony Blair, Larry Summers, Elton John, Damien Hirst, and Vitaly Klitschko. So we don't have baseball covered, but we do have politics, music, and boxing. And she's also extensively covered the political turmoil in Ukraine. She's originally from Kharkiv, which is in Ukraine, and she is an alumni of Columbia University School of Journalism here in New York. So she and I have that contact in common. Uh, she tweets at KSSG, all just those letters, and you can read her blog at Forbes.com. Our baseball guest today is Jeremy Lehrman, and he's here because he is the author of Baseball's Most Baffling MVP Ballots, and that was published by McFarland Company, I believe, this year. He's also the founding editor of PlateCoverage.com, which is a website where he talks about, where, where they talk about baseball and related other sports and kind of other issues, but mostly baseball, at least that's what I read there. Jeremy has also spent the last 20 years as a communications executive, speechwriter, and editorial consultant for some of the world's largest companies, including Novartis, Martian McLennan, and Dow Jones and Company. Uh, Jeremy will be appearing at the Burgino's Baseball Clubhouse, which is here in Manhattan and Greenwich Village, on November 10th at 7 p.m., where he'll be discussing his book and taking questions, and I assume signing copies of the book for those of you who buy it, and I really do suggest you buy it. Jeremy was good enough to send a copy of the book to me, and I really, I, it, it's a great book, and I, it's the kind of book where if you are a person who, like me, and I suspect like Jeremy, kind of is constantly replaying questions about baseball history in your head and thinking about baseball in the 60s, the 50s, the 70s, the 20s. It's that kind of a book. It's a book where you can leave it on your coffee table and kind of or your breakfast table and read a few pages every morning with your coffee or your cereal, or you can sit down and read from cover to cover. I recommend you do both. I've done the former, and, and I'm going to do the latter. It, it's a, it gets into, and, and Jeremy has a way of writing about, he talks about things like war, which is, you know, a more contemporary way of analyzing value, but he also tells baseball stories and anecdotes. So highly recommend this book for, for the baseball fans who are listening. You can get more of Jeremy at his website, playcoverage.com, or you can follow him on Twitter at Jeremy Lehrman. That's Jeremy, the normal spelling, underscore Lehrman, L-E-H-R-M-A-N. Again, I'm your host, Lincoln Mitchell. You can follow me on Twitter at Lincoln Mitchell. If you want to email me, for book events or for talks or anything like that or just anything about the podcast, I'm email, my email address is lincoln at lincolnmitchell.com. My website is lincolnmitchell.com. I want to let you know about a couple of book events I have coming up for my new book, Will Big League Baseball Survive? That is published by Temple University Press. The subtitle of that book is Globalization, the End of Television, Youth Sports, and the Future of Major League Baseball. And on December 1st, which is a Thursday at 7 p.m., I'll have an event at Bergino's Baseball Clubhouse in Greenwich Village. And on December 8th at 7 p.m., I will have an event at the Baseball Center in Manhattan. That is at 74th and Broadway in the old Apple Bank building, if that means anything to you. And please come to either or both of the events. I'd love, I'd love to see you and meet with you and talk baseball with you. One more thing before we get started. In the beginning of the show, I ask a trivia question uh, related to most valuable player voting and most valuable players 
to Jeremy and Katya. Katya knowingly nodded because she knew the answer, but she didn't say it over the course of the podcast, and Jeremy and I discussed it later offline. I will reveal the answer to that question in the closing. So if you don't want to know the answer, you want to ponder it some more after you hear the whole podcast, when you get to the closing after I sign off with my Twitter account and all of that, just turn off the podcast or delete it because that's when I will reveal the answer. So I hope you enjoy this discussion as much as I did. Welcome, Jeremy. Welcome, Katya. Before we get started, I have a trivia question for Jeremy. Jeremy has written the book on Most Valuable Player Award Voting. Bring it on. And the question is this. So over the course of you know, history, a few players, not many, have won two MVP awards in a row. Who is the only player who was a teammate of a player who won two MVPs in a row in the 50s, in the 60s, in the 70s, and in the 80s? He may not have been teammates with them while they did it. He might have been before or after they had that accomplishment. But at one point in his career, he was a teammate with a player who was either doing that, had done it, or would do it later. You can think about that over the course of the podcast. I can't think about that over the course of the podcast because then I will not be able to participate in the podcast because that is way too good a question. Well, it's a, I'll give it a shot. I'll and, give it a and, shot. And I'll give you a hint, which is the answer is somebody who is famous in baseball history for something completely other than this quirky MVP award. Um, so, just to recap, not to spend too much time on this, Katja. No, that's fine. I'm curious. Teammates at one time or another with players who had won back-to-back MVPs in the 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s. Right, but theoretically, he could have been a teammate of someone in the 60s who went who on, later on, went on in the to 50s win. or would have in the 80s or okay. something like that. It's tough. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we're, we're going to begin, and we begin with Jeremy. Jeremy... How has MVP voting evolved over the years? Do you think voters, the MVP voters, are getting better or worse? Uh, You know, Lincoln, that is an interesting question, and I think maybe one way to get at the answer is to to very quickly kind of a, a brief overview of the MVP itself, the history of the award. So the MVP has been around for, in one form or another, for more than 100 years. We should say the MVP is the Most Valuable Player Award. I, yes. The Most Valuable Player Award, it's given, uh, and, and uh, for the benefit of our listeners and, and for Katya, who is our foreign affairs expert today, um, Most Valuable Player Award is given to the player in each league, this is the National League and the American League, deemed... Uh, and this, there's a specific wording for this, most valuable to his team. Now, what's important about that, and we're gonna, I'm sure going to get into this as we, as we talk a little bit, Lincoln, is that there is no specific criteria to define value. So value really is a judgment call. <clears throat> Excuse me. And that's what makes the Most Valuable Player so, uh, Award so interesting um, because it's really based on a set of opinions held by 500 or so uh, members of the Baseball Writers Association of America, and when you get, you, as, as the United States Congress has shown, you can't really, you know, once you, once you hit a critical mass of, of people, you're not going to get uh, a set uh, or a consensus in, in many ways. So the most valuable player has been around um, in one form or another since 1911. The MVP as we know it today came into existence in 1931. Now, since 1931, a couple of trends have uh, have emerged, and, and I'm going to consult some notes here, so I'm cheating a little bit, but the MVP, for the most part, um, it usually goes to the best player, the best all-around player in the league, except when it doesn't. The MVP usually goes to the best player on the best team in baseball, except when it doesn't. So I'll use an example 
that uh, Lincoln will certainly be familiar with, uh, the Big Red Machine of the 1970s, the, uh, one of the greatest teams of all time. Well, they placed six Most Valuable Player winners in eight years. The 1996 to 2001 Yankees, known as the Joe Torre Yankees, they won four world championships, no MVPs. It's a quirk. Uh, players from last place teams never win MVPs, except when they do. Alex Rodriguez won Most Valuable Player Award in 2003, and Andre Dawson in 1987, famously. Why does it happen? Well, it happens very rarely because, I'm so glad you asked, because I get to use a couple of... 97% of most valuable player award winners come from winning teams. 80% or so come from teams that make the playoffs. Um, I apologize. It's, I know we're, we're recording this. You're going to get every quirk. I just need to. <laughs> it's not t television. Sorry. We have no video. <laughs> yeah, how's your editing equipment? So the MVP, what I'm getting at before answering the question, is that the most valuable, it is an inconsistent approach uh, uh, by the voters. Okay, um, there are certain rules that they establish, and then they just they like to break them. So, for example, for some reason, MVP voters tend to ignore defense. Well, it, it's it's a large part of the game, um, but it's a hitter's award. It's always been a hitter's award until they find a player that they decide is so good defensively, which again is very hard to define, by the way. Um, and, and then they will once in a while throw somebody a bone. But, so. but I'm curious about that because yeah. did, did Johnny Bench, who was you know a great defensive yeah. catcher, yeah. did he win those MVP awards? He won those MVP awards because he hit home runs. Yeah, the, Johnny I mean, Bench. Ozzy is, Smith never. Bill never Mazeroski won. never won one. Willie Mays no. didn't win with his glove. No, and defense is kind of think of it this way. So so voters love players who drive in runs. Okay. This is the so, Don Beller. This is the Don Beller. So, and it's the Don Beller, and it's the, it's the narrative of the MVP. I mean, fully a third of, of every winner since 1931 has led the league in RBI, and the majority of winners have been in the top five, top six, top seven RBI. So writers love runs batted in. Um, think of runs batted in as kind of, it's got this rakish hollow charm. It's the bad boy. Defense is the dependable. It's there for you every day. It always shows up. It's not exciting. So defense is kind of in the friend zone, whereas the RBI is the guy they want to date, okay, for, for, to, to use a, 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 <laughs> a slightly off-putting metaphor. So, so, it, it's, so these are the things, so, so it and it depends on the era as well. So defense was valued much more in the 30s, 40s, and 50s than it is today. And part of that has to do with the fact that defensive alignments and, and, and defense is, is so much more highly calibrated today than it was 50, 60, 70 years ago. I mean, Joe DiMaggio, in what I think is a controversial, to go back a couple of generations, 1941 MVP award, uh, right? Clearly, I mean, I think on paper, Ted Williams is the better hitter, so Joe DiMaggio has the streak. You touched on another... But also, was a much better defensive ball player, and certainly viewed that way at the time than yeah. Ted Williams. You touched on another great, another hallmark of, of MVP voting. Um, setting a record of some kind, um, like, say, a 56-game hitting streak goes a long way in the eyes of the voters, um, except when it doesn't. So Roger Maris is named MVP in 1961 when he sets the single-season home run mark. Mark McGuire in 1998 obliterates the single-season right. home run mark. He watches his partner in crime, if you, depending Excuse on your point of view, or his compatriot. Um, Sammy Sosa win the MVP, even though Sosa had a, a vastly inferior all-around season. And Babe season. Ruth didn't win the MVP when he had 61. 
there were other factors at play when Babe Ruth was not, and that's another thing that that uh, is, Katya is 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 doing such a wonderful job feigning interest. Um, <laughs> there was another uh, prior to 1931, the voting rules for the MVP award were incredibly inconsistent. Who sets up the rules? Well, that was just it. The rules were set by the individual leagues at the time. So prior to 1931 in the American League, the reason that Babe Ruth, who was the best player who ever lived and the best single-season player at least a dozen times over the course of his career, he only won one Most Valuable Player Award in 1923. And he uh, he never won an award again because he wasn't eligible to win the award according to the rules at the time. So the greatest player who ever stepped onto a field, the greatest player who ever picked up the bat, the most valuable player by any measure across any era, uh, was recognized once for his achievement because of these silly rules. Well, what was important about 1931 is that they codified and they they applied a consistent set of rules across uh, both leagues. And the MVP, the Baseball Writers Association of America, the voting body for the MVP, uh, they became the official stewards of the award. This, I actually want to maybe move a little. This is very interesting because, you know, over the decades and years, baseball has become more structured and more professionalized, yeah. as a lot of you know, pursuits have. So we have Major League Baseball now, capital M, capital L, capital yeah. B. We used to have two leagues. And a big part of the way Major League Baseball markets itself and presents itself is history, right? the legacy, the history, the sepia-toned pictures of, ba- pictures of Babe Ruth and Ruggerig and all these people. But they have ceded the making of that history to an outside body. This is, this is significant. It is the baseball writers. They are not representative of the league in any way. They are voting independently of that. And we see this with baseball, with the Hall of Fame as well. But, but w- what strikes me is that, is that the MVP voting tells stories about players, and I'll give you one example from, uh, and I'll reveal my own bias, is that in 1979, right, we have, you know, you can make cases where three guys, two guys who didn't deserve the MVP got it, right, I would say 74 is a good example of that. 1979 is a case where three guys who didn't deserve the MVP got it, because the National League, they tied with Keith Hernandez and Willie Stargell. And to me, what's significant of that is that there's a generation of baseball fans who think Willie Stargell is a better player than Willie McCovey. And mm-hmm. the reason for that is that these are both big, left-handed, slugging African-American first basemen who've been around forever, and only one of them won an MVP award you know, in, in, when they were growing up. Now, Lincoln is betraying a San Francisco bias here um, because Willie McCovey may or may not have been a better player than Willie Stargell. He was an outstanding player, but you're absolutely right. And I'm not sure Willie's... I mean, if you look at the ballparks they played in, I would say that Willie McCovey's comeback player of the year season in 77 was every bit as good as Willie Stargell's MVP season in 79. Yeah, no, you're you're, you're completely right about 1979. 1979, I I touch on that season in in the book, and and, and there's a line in in the chapter somewhere, and it says they named... The the writers named three MVPs in 1979. They may have gotten it right once, because you you could... you could make the case that Keith Hernandez was, was a deserving, certainly no less deserving than anybody else. But, but I think also with 79, and we've touched on this in, in other conversations yeah. outside, and then I want to maybe make a, 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 make a little bit of a, of a connection here, but um, the Don Baylor MVP award, 79 is one of the few cases where someone leads the league in slugging on base percentage and wins a gold glove at a kind of marquee defensive position and doesn't win the MVP award. 
And that player is Fred Lynn. And if you ask all but the more intense Red Sox fans who was the best outfielder of that era on their team, they would say Rice. Rice was probably the third best outfielder. And if Fred Lynn comes away from the late 70s with two MVP awards, he's probably in the Hall of Fame instead of Jim Rice. Now, I would argue that the one who deserves to be in the Hall of Fame is Dwight Evans but of, <laughs> of that group. But that's, that's different. Right, I mean, it's a different you, you, You'll get no argument from me. And what, and what the Baylor MVP, the 1979 Baylor MVP that, that Lincoln is referring to, um, was one of the worst selections in the history of, of the award. And it is illustrative, again, of this, um, well, quite frankly, this infantile fascination with runs batted in, runs driven in, uh, by the writers. Um, Don Beller won the MVP for two reasons. One was he led the league in RBI. And he, by the way, he had, a, he had a very nice season. He was a good player. But, he, he, you know, compared to Fred Lynn, who was clearly the best player in baseball, clearly. And Don Baylor also played for a division winner. Well, the fallacy there is that Don Baylor's Angels actually won fewer games than Fred Lynn's Red Sox. Uh, the Red Sox happened to finish third, and the Angels finished first in their division. But they were the inferior team. Um, so again, it's falling for the false charm of the RBI, which which is a context-specific statistic. Because 139, I think that's, if that's exactly what it was. That, yeah. that Baylor drove in, doing it on a team like the Angels that scored a bunch of runs, had a bunch of table setters, but actually harder Rich, than doing it on some down. teams. Absolutely, absolutely. So, so no, you're, you're right. And you you would ask, the original question was, uh, are, are voters getting better or worse? And if, had you asked that question, and uh, I, will, I will try to be brief on this one, I promise. If you had asked that question in 2006, 10 years ago, I would have said, you know, they're as, they're as bad as ever. They're as bad as ever. The reason I say that is because 2006, uh, Justin Morneau of the Minnesota Twins was named MVP. And, uh, but, but people really remember that, as particularly in the New York area, as the year that Derek Jeter lost the MVP. Now, I don't particularly subscribe to that. Jeter was a fine candidate. There were other candidates. Morneau was not a great choice. Uh, again, he drove in a lot of runs. He played for a division-winning team. Um, had a fairly mediocre on-base percentage. Didn't do anything else particularly played well. Base. Played first base. Was not, not a good base runner. Not particularly well. Derek Jeter was a much better all-around player. Um, David Ortiz had a case. Joe Maurer had a case. But So 2006 was, was the last really bad vote in my mind. I think the voters have gotten in the last 10 years or so, and this really is because of the advent of advanced statistical analysis, um, which is really, we're, we're, we're in the golden age right now with StatCast and other things like that. I think it has to do with the fact that the, uh, the electorate itself is getting younger. The demographics of the, of the Baseball Writers Association of America are, are getting younger, and these are, these are fans and students of the game who uh, are much more at ease with challenging orthodoxy, who say, well, okay, he drove in 100 runs, but, uh, you know, anyone could have driven in 100 runs if they played on that team in that lineup spot in that park. Right. This guy actually wasn't any good. Um, so I think we are seeing trends uh, kind of drifting in the right direction when it comes to the vote. I, I don't know that we're going to see a terrible vote anytime soon, but if you're a fan of Mike Trout, you might say, well, there's been, it's been terrible for the last five years. It could be terrible again this year. And it could be terrible so, again this year if you think that Mike right. Trout, if, if the best player should automatically be conferred as most valuable, then yeah, you, you have an issue. I happen to find it more interesting that we can't really come to a set agreement on, on what And that certainly makes it more fun. Um, so I'm going I'm to, we, we talked a little bit about how MVP voting is important for the players involved, but it's also important because how we tell the history. Of, mm. the, of the sport. Um, to change gears just a little bit, in 
Ukraine right now, this, this ongoing conflict uh, it, it, with Russia's uh, involvement and efforts to disrupt and, and destabilize Ukraine and Crimea, uh, in Crimea but also in the Donbass region, there's a lot driving that. And there's, of course, a lot at stake there for, for a lot of different actors. But one of the, the questions that come to my mind is that this is also, in, in some respects, an effort by, by different sides to tell different stories about the history. Right? Russia has a very different view of the history of Ukraine, which means a very different view of the present status of Ukraine than, for example, we might hold in Washington, or more importantly, the leadership of Ukraine might hold in Kiev. And that's best summed up with um, what I call, somewhat disrespectfully, Putin's South Park moment, where he referred to Ukraine as not really being a country. Mm -hmm. But give with that in mind, what do you think happens there in the next year? This isn't going on for, for a while. It's, it's in the news here a lot because uh, of uh, the presidential election here. But but what's at stake here? What, how do you see this playing out in the next few years? What should we be looking at, looking for, and looking at in the Ukraine-Russia conflict? I uh, think that it's very complicated what's happening there, and it's extremely difficult to predict or make any kind of guesses on what's going to happen. Um, you write about the history that everybody writes history the way they want, and in the Soviet Union, it was actually a big. Um, deal to rewrite and create the history that would fit the communistic view. So by now I think a lot of people really don't know the history of Ukraine or Russia and um, maybe even the Western view of uh, Ukrainian history is a little bit more clear than what comes from Russia because Russia has been definitely living under the propaganda for many, many, many years and they always looked at uh, Ukraine as if it was kind of like a colony, so they never really recognized it, even before the Bolshevik Revolution in 1917. So they don't uh, recognize Ukraine as a country that has independent history and cultural values and everything. Um, in Ukraine, that aspect also is kind of controversial because there is East, there is West, there are progressive people, there are people who don't really want change, so everybody picks a little bit from the history and creates their own story. And uh, the history that's been written right now, it's also very complex and controversial, and it also depends on who you're talking to, and that's how you will view the conflict. Um, that's why I think the job of a journalist or any kind of researcher is very important, because if you're not biased, or at least try not to be biased, and you pick different um, facts from different sides and also do your own research, maybe you can get a little bit closer to something that's that can be called truth, and maybe based on that you can make conclusions about the future, but um, in my opinion there is so much um, dirt on every party right now and there is such a flood of information and some of it is paid by people who are fighting with each other and some of it is just genuinely misunderstood. So. It's really hard to imagine the future of this country. Not something, I mean, I don't think there will be any drastic changes because they already made a move. They tried to break off the Soviet, from the Soviet past and they tried to look towards something else other than Russia and you know the former Soviet Union style. But within that, there is also very little clarity. Are there reforms or not? Is it just, are they just pretending? Is the government just pretending that they're conducting reforms or 
other actual changes. If you talk to regular people, they would say, no, nothing has changed. If you talk to people who desperately try to change something and they really try to make improvements here and there, they see changes, but these changes didn't reach across the population yet. If you ask about the president of Ukraine, is he corrupt or not? Because, you know, he speaks English, he looks kind of Western, and I think he genuinely likes Ukraine and he wants the country to succeed. But he's from the old school. There is no way he's all of a sudden so altruistic and, you know, just about the change. I'm sure that he protects his own interests and he puts his own people in place just like Yanukovych did. Is he a good guy? Is he a bad guy? Is he going to do something good for the country? So that's kind of affecting the future, right? Like the, the future history of, of Ukraine. I, I can be confident about one thing, that the way it looks to me right now, there is no way the country will drift back to Russia. It's done. It might take much longer for the country to move forward and become one of the versions of European states, but it's it's over with Russia. The love affair with Russia is over. <laughs> when you say the love affair with Russia is over, does that mean that Russia uh, will not be pursuing, uh, well, a further land grab? Oh yeah, they might. I mean, they accumulated so much weapon, weapon on the border of Ukraine and Russia right now, so they might try to... So is, is the story of... Uh, so the story of Crimea is effectively told. It's, it's been annexed. It's been yeah. annexed. Does that... So... And from what I understand, the Minsk, Minsk II uh, accord that they're trying to hammer out Basically, effectively, the Ukraine is, is saying, okay, in return for some concessions, it's yours. Or it, Yours you, meaning uh, Ukraine Russia, Russia Meaning that Crimea is now with Russia. Is that, I, so I guess when you say that, that, that Ukraine, you see Ukraine not drifting, the love affair with Russia is over, is it a... But d does that necessarily mean that Russia's interest in, in moving ahead and... and you know, reclaiming its former colony, as, you, as, as, as it was alluded to well, earlier, is over. Let's go back a little bit. In the past, Ukraine had pro-Russian government that was willing to work with Putin. And I think the country was also not committed to making any kind of reforms that would change um, the economy and change this post-Soviet state of the country. From the 90s, from what I, and correct me if I'm wrong, I think there was some kind of a deal when Ukraine declared independence and Moscow accepted it, but it was understood that Ukraine won't conduct any true reforms in terms of its economy and policies and everything, changing the socialist, whatever, you know, I don't know how to describe and it, socialist the West. economy. Yeah, it, it won't become truly a free market economy. That's why for decades the country was kind of stagnated and it was um, sort of understood between Russia and Ukrainian government that that's how they paid the price for the independence, for being for getting the right to be called an independent country, but they weren't truly really independent. And it was also an arrangement that worked very well for Ukraine's leaders. Yeah. They were able to do what they wanted and get what they, they wanted. 
Exactly. And for people too. People never really truly went through the transformation. It was a big Soviet propaganda machine that brainwashed a lot of people sure. throughout that territory. So for Ukraine, it was like we're brothers. And you know, for Russia, you're a younger brother. For Ukraine, it's like you're a bigger brother. You give us gas and you know, no borders. We're all very friendly. And Russians are still thinking like this. And um, you know, if you talk to a regular Russian person, even a cab driver here in New York, they will tell you, for me, there is no difference between Russia and Ukraine. Russians and Ukrainians are brothers. These are just the and politicians. That's probably even more extreme when you ask them about Crimea. I try not to. <laughs> but but something changed. Really, it can stir more drama than in baseball world. <laughs> something changed, though, right? Because in 2014, they ousted... It was because the U Ukrainian president... Um, didn't he kind of essentially... Uh, just pull a bait and switch, and and he he had campaigned or run or told told pledged. his country pledge that that they were going to move toward the west, and that they uh, eventually wanted to perhaps uh, join NATO or the European Union in some form. And so the Ukrainian population obviously responded to this. And then when he basically said, "Well, yeah, that, we're not going to be doing that anymore," well, people took to the streets. I remember. That's right. That's right. right. So. Something changed in the Ukrainian, I guess, at least in, in, in Western Ukraine, something changed. Well, Western Ukraine, nothing changed, because the, the, the strong anti-Russia sentiment had been anti there. Anti-Russia has always while. been there. Okay. I think what Katya is suggesting, and stop me if I'm wrong, because I don't want to okay. jump in too heavily here, but, and, and, and I've been to Ukraine a fair amount in the last 12 months, and I'm actually going there next, on Monday I'm going there, so I'll have, so if we do this a week from now, if we reconvene, I'll have more insight. Um, but, but what seems to me is that up until before the, the events you're describing, you could really speak about Ukraine as a country where opinion on Russia was divided. The Russian incursion into Crimea and into other regions, the Donbass region, which is another part of eastern Ukraine, has really solidified public opinion against Russia. Countries, even countries where they think of their neighbor as a big brother or are told to think of their neighbor as a big brother. And even when they share, I mean, many people in Eastern Ukraine speak Russian and even as their first language, or in some mm -hmm. case, their second language. But they don't like being invaded by that country, <laughs> right? So, I mean, they, they don't like having airplanes shot down by that country, killing civilians right. over their territory with a lot of atrocities that have been occurred there. So, so this, I think, is the argument you're making, has kind of mm -hmm. solidified an anti-Russian sentiment nationally as opposed to being more divided. Is that... Yeah, because in the past it was mostly the conversations between are we moving east, are we moving west? And a lot of people in the east, they didn't really understand this whole deal, so they were like, we don't care, we're not going out on the streets to support pro-western course. But when Putin invaded, even those who were indifferent in the eastern part, they were like, this is our country, and we don't like it to be invaded. So it united people even though they were probably divided. And a lot of people really don't know what it means to move west. It's just a conversation for them. But that was very obvious. This is our land. You have no right to come in. And for Russians, it was also their land. That's what kind of, you know, the general popular idea is. And for Ukraine, the border was ending right there, like outside of Kharkiv region near Belgorod. That was like, this is Ukraine, this is Russia. And uh, when they started coming in and messing with Ukrainian territory, people didn't like it. And, you know, we know what's happening now. Well, I wanted to ask a follow-up to that, though, because sure. what, what strikes me about Ukraine is that, and, and I, I, 
in, after the Orange Revolution of 2004, I remember I was in, in Ukraine, I want to say in 05 or 06. I wasn't there in 04 um, for reasons that we can maybe get into off, offline. Um, and <laughs> but I was there talking to an American friend who had spent some time there during the Orange Revolution. I was there for work. We were chatting in a restaurant or something. And I said, so what has really changed here with the Orange Revolution? There was already some concern about it. And he said, this country can't go back. But slowly, under Yanukovych, who came in in 2010, it began to. So this question of it can't go back, I, always, I, I often think that in, in countries like Ukraine, sometimes cycles are a more powerful explanation than the language we hear about the revolution, right? So I'm going to make a baseball analogy here, too. According to the language we hear about Ukraine, this has been their second revolution this century. You're having two revolutions in a 15-year period. You're not having any revolutions. It's the same thing there was, so, so yesterday, just, uh, I, we're recording in October, and in October you always have to say where you are in the playoffs, because by the time this airs, we'll probably know who's in the World Series. Yesterday the Indians wrapped up the American League, and the Dodgers and Cubs series got nodded at two because the Cubs drubbed uh, the Dodgers in Los Angeles. Article on one of the MLB or ESPN websites, can Dodgers shift momentum today? If you shift momentum every game, there's no such thing as momentum. If you have a revolution every 10 years, there's no such thing as a revolution. So maybe we, instead of talking about revolutions, we should talk about cycles or, mm -hmm. or, or variation within a larger regime type. Just say, maybe we shouldn't talk about momentum. We should talk about who's going to win the game or who won the last game. Yeah, well, and as, as a, a layperson, certainly, in, in, uh, in, in these matters of state, um, the cyclical nature of what you're describing, that seems to me anyway to also apply to Russia to, as a whole be, because if you, so it seems anyway from, again, from my uh, completely uninformed observation that, you know, the, the rise of Putin kind of speaks to this return to this authoritarian type of uh, tempered with this petrol oligarchical, <laughs> you know, structure that's in place. Um, you know, the kind of quasi-capitalism, kind of not, but that is this return to this authoritarian kind of, of, of rule. Um, and if, if you're returning to that over and over, I don't know, does that suggest that, that, that the, uh, the, you know, the, 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 what Gorbachev started and, and carried through, that that really was not a revolution, so to speak, that, that, was, that, that it, maybe it was a, a, a shift in, 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 in labeling of a political system, but it wasn't really a change. I, I don't know. I'm, I'm just posing the question that, or, or, or another way to ask that is that maybe if we really want to understand Putin, you have to look to history beginning before 1991, right? In other words, the place in the context of that cycle, not just mm -hmm. Gorbachev, but going back even further, where you have the cycle after Stalin, you have Khrushchev, who was a reformer, right? And then Brezhnev, who was not, and then ultimately Gorbachev, mm -hmm. who was. So, so maybe that's, again, we're just talking to varying degrees. Sure, for sure, yeah. Well, and in Russia, they usually refer to the time in the 90s as some kind of like a, you know, freedom, moment of freedom, or like fresh wind, and as soon as Putin came back, he basically ended all of it gradually, but the course was where Russia is right now, so it was just kind of an accident or something that just happened, and Russia didn't really have a chance to establish itself as a free democratic country, because 10 years, or less than 10 years, it's not enough, so then it just went back to what you're saying, like before 1991, using the same similar methods, using, you know, even the same people, 
and KGB and all the tricks that the Soviet Union was using to keep the country together and the system organized. And if we want to understand, in my view, Russian activity, and we're talking a lot about Ukraine, but we could be talking about other countries. We could obviously be talking about Georgia, which mm -hmm. is a country where I pay a lot of attention, um, but also we talk about Central Asia and, and Moldova. And if we want to understand Russia's foreign policy, and I think we, we need to understand Russia's foreign policy because it's a, it's a threat to our allies and it's a destabilized, pretty big swaths of the world. It's a big country. Or as, or as Donald Trump would say, pretty big swatches of the world. Um, but we have to understand Russia's domestic policy. Now, we're not going to have a long discussion of Russia's domestic policy, but, but a lot of what Putin does, and I don't mean to personalize it, because it's a highly personalized system of leadership there. You know, if... if if the economy is going bad and you can't give them freedom, give them a foreign adventure. Right. And then when the foreign adventure goes wrong, you have to react to that because you, you can't. Mm -hmm. he can't really afford to be in Ukraine forever either at this rate. Yeah, they have a lot of, um, it's kind of like a fake TV shows. Have you ever seen uh, Goodbye Lenin, this film? Have you? I did. Do I'm, you remember how they faked the news for his mother who was in coma? So they recorded something in the library with the fake background, pretending that the communism was still going. So that's what they're doing in Russia. They shoot, you know, military scenes in the studio. They hire actors to pretend that they, especially two years ago when there was this conflict in Donbass, it just started. They hired actor, actors to pretend that they were refugees or mothers of, you know, the children that refugees were killed from by, Ukraine. From Ukraine, yeah. So, or there was a mother, who, somebody who was hired to be the mother of a child who was killed by Ukrainian nationalists, just to prove that there are fascists in Ukraine. And when people sit there on their couches, they may not have, in Russia, they may not have enough food to eat or like fancy cheeses and stuff, but they have this action going on on TV and they have to feed into it. So when Ukraine became old news, then Syria happened and they were, you know, watching these action movies about Syria Children in Russian schools were singing songs about Syria, how to support Syria, and Syria became their sister. It, it's really bizarre, but that's the reality that uh, became the domestic policy in Russia. So is that what this is? So a, a question I had for you, actually, was along these lines. And it, my question really was, uh, with regard to Ukraine, but also Syria, which is essentially a proxy war between the United States and Russia, we're, we're dangerously, Moving close, in that direction, dangerously close to becoming one. Um, the meddling in the United States election, um, which everybody except the Republican nominee seems to <laughs> accept the as fact. Um, this is what is is Putin's end game here? Is it really? Are these just foreign adventures and diversionary tactics and reality TV to to uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Misdirection so that that the that. The country that he's leading, which is crumbling apparently in, in many regards, that, that the people who don't have enough to eat aren't paying attention to the fact that they don't have enough to eat and that there's no work and, and that the power grid is is unreliable. And what what's the end game here? Where what is the? I would love to know, but I don't think anybody knows. <laughs> that's an excellent uh, way to think about it. One part of the end game is to begin by asking what Putin's motivations are, right? So we talked about the domestic politics side of it, and we have to consider that. You're right, there can't be all of it. But in my view, if you want to understand what Putin's foreign policy uh, endgame is, in terms of what he, really, what he sees as Russia's interest that he's going to try to pursue, uh, is he sees anything he can do to push back against American hegemony in the world is in his interest and Russia's interest. 
And we see that. So he's not, I mean, we can get into this maybe later. It took us, I can't have my glasses on, it took us a full 34 minutes to mention Donald Trump, which is a record for painting the corners. It was so hard to admit, Lincoln, I, I, yeah. But 34, so maybe, so maybe we'll win the MVP award because we set the 34-minute record. But Vladimir Putin, and I will say this, this is going to air before the election, Vladimir Putin is not going to elect Donald Trump president of the United States. Right? Right. The people of the United States are going to elect Hillary Clinton president of the United States. And even Donald Trump knows that. I mean, even Vladimir Putin knows that. I'm not sure that Donald Trump knows that. But that's, this plan isn't going to work. Oh, yeah. I, I didn't but, want to suggest. But, but why it's important is what is he showing here? And what he's showing here is that we are as vulnerable yeah. as what he views as these two-bit countries in his, far, in his near abroad, right. which we would view as legitimate states that are our allies and friends. Right? So we don't see them as two-bit, but that's how he sees them. So what he says is, I can meddle in America the way I can meddle in Georgia, the way I can meddle in Ukraine, the way I can meddle in many European countries. And for him, that is a standalone victory because it, it weakens our, our own perceptions as American citizens and the world's perceptions of what we as American citizens, and I'll speak as one of 300 million, so maybe not everyone agrees with me, but as democratic institutions that are very important to our national security, but also to our, to our definition of ourselves as Americans. Fair elections, mm -hmm. democracy, sovereignty, sovereign elections, sovereign processes, right? That's the goal. I agree with you. And I think the fact that uh, Trump said yesterday that he may not, well, he implied that he may not even accept the results of the elections, that's also part of this. Uh... So, 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 so my question for you, Jeremy, to go back to, to the baseball for a moment. 1974. If we have to. Vladimir Putin has a vote for MVP. Who does he vote for? <laughs> 1974. Vladimir Putin. No, I'm joking. <laughs> uh, I, I, I'm, I'm, it's a good question. I, I would have to think about it. Maybe Dick Allen. <laughs> Probably not Paul Karnerko, right? Because he's Ukrainian-American, I believe. Um, but, but, but in all seriousness, let's, let's, I want to get back to some, some Russia-Ukraine things a little bit later on this question of the presidency. But, and, and I'm going to... We, we talked a little about good and bad votes. And we, and we yeah. talked about the Don Baylor year. Sure. And, and Don Baylor does fit into this, this story. It's easy to tell a story for Don Baylor in 79, that not only the Angels win, they win kind of, they break it through, the uh, Kansas City Royals had won three division titles in a row in the American League West. You remember that, right? The, um, I'm making, taking <laughs> the, It's the first division title, first time the Angels had ever been to the playoffs. So there's a story that, you know, makes some sense there. Joe DiMaggio. Voters love a story. So like, talk to me about stories. They love, so there are certain truisms when it comes to the most valuable player award voting, and one of them is that voters love a narrative. Now think about who's doing the voting. Sports writers. Um, so of course they love a narrative because they play a large part in creating the narrative. And, and I, don't, I don't say that, you know, I'm not casting an aspersion by saying that. That's just, those are the facts. Look, you need to feed the beast. You need copy for every day. You need, you've got eight inches of column that you need to fill. And, and, and this, is, this is one way to do that. You create these narratives. Um, or else why else do people watch the games? Because at the end of the day, it, it, it's... The score is not the story many times, right? Um, so I think it was Woody Allen. Somebody asked Woody Allen uh, not too long ago. Um, he said, you know, what, what do you like to, what form of entertainment do you like to consume? And he said, these days the only thing I watch is sports because it's the only thing that still has the power to surprise me. I have no interest in something, in anything else that's scripted. Mm -hmm. um, 
And that's the only time I'll quote Woody Allen today, I promise. Um, so th it's the storyline. And if you can wrap an award in the cloak of a good story, a juicy story, um, and by the way, not necessarily even the winner or the lead. So we talked about Mike Trout. Well, the storyline for Mike Trout, Couch, Mike Trout is this young guy who plays for the California Angels. And since the moment he stepped onto a baseball field five years ago, he has been, uh, by a fair margin, the best player in Major League Baseball. So he is unequivocally the best in the world at his chosen endeavor. It's a pretty cool thing. It doesn't come along very often. So for five years, he's been the best player in baseball. And he's only been recognized with one award. And there's various reasons as to why, and, but every year, one of the bigger storylines is Mike Trout is getting shafted again, and here's why. And the story then becomes, who, why would anyone possibly vote for anybody else but Mike Trout? Um, and there's a variation on this story every year. And, and so the storyline with Joe DiMaggio in 1941 and 1947, when he won another award, which he did not deserve, was that Joe DiMaggio, the Yankee Clipper, he is uh, a leader among leaders. He is the face of the New York franchise, the face of the New York Yankees, which at the time was, was far and away the most popular and beloved and reviled and, and hated uh, team of professional sports. Um, he was America's hero, Joe DiMaggio. He married Marilyn Monroe. Well, he hadn't married her yet. He hadn't married her until after. I'm sorry, you're exactly right. You're exactly right. But he did have a song written about him. Um, I think also DiMaggio was... The, 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 to me, the story about DiMaggio, one, he played New York, as, as you mentioned, yeah. but also he was, he had, in, in a moment when America was, was the power in America was unequivocally shifting from the old wasp ascendancy to the immigrant Im story. Well, immigrant he was story, the immigrant right? story. And he had this wonderful, compelling, and actually picturesque white immigrant story. He was an Italian-American guy from San Francisco. His dad was a fisherman. Right. In San Francisco, an uneducated fisherman. And DiMaggio uh, was absolutely the, the, this, this embodiment of, of this narrative that was created around him. Um, and back then, you know, sports writers uh, were in the business of myth-making. And that also played into these things. So Joe DiMaggio turned out, if you've read the Richard Ben Kramer book, Joe DiMaggio was, um, gosh, this is going to be sacrilegious. We might get some tweets about this. But Joe DiMaggio turns out he was kind of a prick. Yeah, you can say that. I think that's a lot. <laughs> um, one, one Joe DiMaggio story. So, in, in, in San Francisco, one, one along those lines, um, he was from San Francisco, and, and he was beloved in his hometown until the day he, he died, and after that, and one of the reasons for that was that when he divorced Marilyn Monroe, he was living in Los Angeles, and he called some Italian-American buddy of his from North Beach and said, you got to get me out of here, I need your help. So the guy, because Joe DiMaggio calls, in America, you drop what you're doing. Drives from San Francisco to L.A., waits and goes and parks in front of DiMaggio and Marilyn Monroe's house, goes inside to see what DiMaggio wants, and he says, I, I, I'm leaving, I, I can't, you know. And, and he says, all right, so he helps him pack the car. All these writers were out there, because Joe DiMaggio and Marilyn Monroe, this is the couple to end all couples. And, 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 and they look at him, and he gets in the car with this guy, who's his lifelong friend, behind the wheel, and they say to DiMaggio as he's pulling out, as the car's pulling out, so where are you going? And he says, I'm going home, I'm going to San Francisco. And that was, so he was, that was, he was beloved in San Francisco for that, but there was a sports a, a columnist in San Francisco named Herb Cain. And Herb Cain was a legendary writer. He didn't write about sports. He wrote about, he did, wrote a daily column that everyone in the city read every day for 50 years. And he was very influential. He coined the term beatnik. He was 
one of the first, he came, he was a progressive guy, came out against the Vietnam War, but also would write about everything from kind of, you know, popular culture to gossip to sports, whatever was on his mind. It was a big deal if you got in Herb Cain's column. And for years, you may know the story, he referred to Joe DiMaggio as fish hooks, right? Do you know the story? He referred to Joe DiMaggio as, as in, you know, I was out with fish hooks and I'm Magnin and, you know, Joe Aliotto last night and we were having, drinking vitamin V, which was his words for vodka martini. Beautiful Runyon-esque right, it was, approach. It was, it was just great. wonderful. And, yeah. and, and people, and they said, they, people just assumed that he was called fish hooks because he came from a fisherman family. His father had been a fisherman. Well, at one point, Herb Cain was asked about this and he said, no, that's not why I call him fish hooks. And he said, well, then why do you call him fish hooks? And he said, well, he has fish hooks in his pocket. And they said, how do you know that? And he said, because he never sticks his hand in there. <laughs> <laughs> he, yes, he was notoriously to Joe DiMaggio with pride, did not pay for a drink for 50 years. Although I have a friend, from, a, for a Catholic years. school friend, who belonged to a club in San Francisco, uh, where we did not belong because uh, when I was growing up, they didn't take Jews there. And um, my mother was very much at the school that if they don't want us there, we don't want to belong. So never belonged there. But he used to go there and have a drink every now and then. And he said, Joe DiMaggio would sit in the corner you know, and have a drink every now and then. So my friend would sit. And he said that, that if you were there, if you were a regular for a couple years there, right, this was a very private but hugely famous guy, he would, after a while, he'd nod his head at you. And that's a big deal. You had to get nod of the head from Joe DiMaggio. And you would nod back. And that was as cool as it got in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. And so he got to the nodding terms with Joe DiMaggio, which is a big deal. And then he said somebody came in once who hadn't been there before and went up to DiMaggio and asked him a question about Marilyn Monroe. Big mistake. And he said that Joe DiMaggio gave him a look. And he says, cliche, but he said, if you could kill somebody with your eyes, DiMaggio came about as close as you could to doing that. He was not a nice man. He was, he was uh, by contemporary accounts anyway, he was, he was a, a, a complicated guy. But also, there was, everybody knew not to ask not Marilyn Monroe. Even if he had been a great guy, you knew not to do that. You knew not to do that. You knew not to do that. Just like you didn't ask, right, you didn't ask Sinatra about Bobby Kennedy. Right. right. <laughs> so he didn't. reasons, but, yes. <laughs> So you didn't ask. Um, now I, I, uh, I think we had, we were talking about the 1979 or the, or the MVP, the storylines attendant to the MVP vote. And I don't know if there was something uh, specific that we wanted to touch on, but the idea of the narrative and the telling of the story, and I think that's one of the reasons why the MVP is really one of the, uh, it's it's arguably the most prestigious and contentious single season award in all of professional sport. None of the other major league... Say this in the introduction to your book, I mean, I was reading that. Well, none of the other major leagues, and and here we refer to the the National Basketball Association, the NFL, um, they all have their own version of the award. and you can argue that these sports are much more visible in the American consciousness and culture than baseball is today. Yet, their version of the MVP just does not carry the same sort of, of, of relevance and cachet that baseball does. And I think part of it is because of the storyline angle. The MVP is a touchstone for a particular season, or if you're a, a fan of a certain age, as, as Lincoln and I are, it, it, it's evocative of, of, a, of a time in your life or a team that you followed. For you, it's Willie McCovey, 1969's San Francisco, uh, and his comeback player of the year award in 77. For me, it's Don Mattingly, 1985, for the Yankees. I want to ask a Don Mattingly question, because sure. I was a huge Don Mattingly fan growing up. We, we've talked a lot about, about RBIs and the kind of the weird magic of the RBI, right? But 
RBI is particularly quirky, not just because it's dependent. You can't drive in a lot of runs if you don't have people batting ahead of you. But it's only just a quirk of, and I forget why, but there was, I read an article about this in the early 1910s or so. Until then, runs were more important than RBIs. And, and you could argue that they actually are a better measure of ability. And, and, oh, I, I think it's inarguable. So, yeah. so in 1985, and, and in your book you have this discussion of 86, an award where yeah. I think my heart was on the, was on the side of Mattingly, although I'm open, to being, <laughs> I'm open to being convinced that the numbers show me wrong. But in 1978, I'm not open to being convinced that I was wrong about Gidry, who I thought deserved the MVP. I don't care what you say, but what you wrote in your book, I just, no, I'm, I, not, I, I'm not open I, to that I, argument. I was all for Gidry. But in 1985, <laughs> yeah. I thought Ricky, in, in, and I was happy Mattingly got it. In yeah. retrospect, Ricky Henderson was a better player. In retrospect, so Don Mattingly was, um, Katya, this is going to sound very silly. So the, your favorite player of all time is your favorite player when you were 13 or 14 right. years old. That's just the way it is. And, and as an adult... Um, I think Lincoln, you and I, perhaps we share this this uh, appreciation for the game, but we're more of a of a general fan of the game as opposed to a we don't live and die maybe with a particular player. Hopefully, if you're an adult male, right. Right. You, but we you do with a team. I mean, but you do with, with perhaps with a team or a couple so, teams. So Don Mattingly to a generation of of guys who are in, in their forties now um, represents New York baseball. He was this beloved figure. Um, and he's still very he's he's still very much alive. He's I think he's in his fifties. He's he's manager of the Miami That's franchise. Um, and he is so he's he, he's he's still around. He was he was a wonderful baseball player, and he just embodied kind of the New York grit at the time. And, and he was when people would say, you know, that's what a ball player looks like. They pointed to Don Mattingly. He had the cool mustache, and he had the eye black, and he had the quirky batting guess. sense. He was just a, a hard scrabble guy. And in 1985, so when I say that I was thrilled that Don Mattingly won the MVP. Of course I was. In doing research for this book, it became very clear that Ricky Henderson... His teammate. His teammate um, was the best player in baseball uh, and should have been named most valuable player. But, again, the prism through which the voters viewed the game was just different then, and it was RBI. I mean, George Brett, the Kansas City Royals, would also would have been a better the choice than Don Mattingly. Yeah. But... Um, you know, and RBIs, as you touched on, they weren't even recognized as, a, as an official statistic until 1920, which, among other things, means that Babe Ruth lost about 300 official runs batted in from his career total, and it dropped him from, like, second on the list to sixth or seventh on the list. They just, poof, they disappeared because anything that happened before 1920 didn't exist, according to the Elias Sports Bureau or whatever. So, um... It, it is very much uh, the way that the game has been, not just for the voting, but also just the, the way that we, as fans, um, you know, there's this generation of sports writers who are, it's kind of a defiant last stand. You know, they're not going to let go of the triple crown statues, batting average home runs and RBI. Real men drive in runs. That's what real men do. Um, well, as the Cubs, and really as, as most major league teams now, as they're currently constructed, which is based entirely on data, Entirely right. on data. Sure. These are they're, they're twenty-eight year old data crunching statisticians are the ones who are building major league rosters now, um, more so even than scouting departments. Um, they build teams very differently, um, and runs scored is a much more important statistic because it means that you're getting on base and you're not making outs, and getting on base and not making outs is the most important uh, driver of any offense. It's, it's not driving the and and the the Henderson Mattingly issue. I mean, it's. I, I was thinking. Uh, I was in. I was thinking. There's also a racial component to this because there's always a racial component to story in America, 
but there's a racial component except for when there isn't, right? Right. So, so the example that, and I think this is, and then I want to, it was an interesting one for me, was 1989. 1989, Kevin Mitchell wins the National League Most Valuable Player Award. The Giants come out of nowhere, very similar to Don Beller, better year, but very similar yeah. to Don Beller. Giants come out of nowhere, win the division. Kevin Mitchell leads the league in 47 home runs, which hitting in Campbell Park is like 140 somewhere else. I'm exaggerating. I think he led the no, league in RBIs or yeah. came in close. Yeah, he had a wonderful year. And, and there is a... He wins. And the 1990 baseball abstract, Bill James writes, some people have suggested that Kevin Mitchell and Will Clark should have been co the piece. That's nonsense. Mitchell was the better player. When he writes the new Bill James historical abstract, he says people, Mitch, Kevin, uh, excuse me, Will Clark's 1989 season was one of the best of the decade and he should have been the MVP that year. So within one person who was a pretty yeah. smart guy in baseball stuff, and I'm yeah. making an understatement, yeah. even opinions can change. What's also striking is in that case, the African-American guy, just like in 78 over Guidry, uh, Guidry mm-hmm. and, uh, mm-hmm. and Rice, the African-American guy actually won out against the white guy. So the race politics is at the very least complicated here. You know, we, we could, and we won't because we're being sensitive to time, but, but we, we could spend a, a lot of time on the race uh, I don't want to say the race issue, but but the race as a factor in the MVP vote because it was something that that I explored um, uh, and and researched to some extent uh, for the book, and I wanted to uh, the, the question that I asked I did not know the answer when I asked the question the question that I asked was does race or ra- or attitudes towards race does it seem to impact the MVP vote, and the reason I asked this question was and I don't have all the numbers at, at my fingertips right now. Um, but if you look at the national, the history of the National League voting, well, about half of all Most Valuable Player awards since Jackie Robinson won the award in 1949, and Jackie Robinson broke in and broke the color barrier in 1947. He was named MVP in 1949. Since Jackie Robinson won the award in 1949, about half, fully half, of all MVPs have gone to an African-American player in the National League. The American League, the number is something like... 10%, okay? So there's this huge disparity. Oh, they must have it into rate. Well, so that was what... And, and, and uh, you're absolutely right. But what was interesting to me, not just in terms of the African-American uh, player population and, and the awards voting, but for the Hispanic vote, for the Latin American vote, well, in the, in the American League, it's something like, oh, let's, let's say, off the top of my head, uh, 25% of all awards have gone to... Uh, a Hispanic or, or a Latin American player, but in the National League, it's something like 12 or 13 percent. So, okay, in the American League, black players don't win the MVP. In fact, an African American player has not been named MVP in the American League since 1997, if you can believe that. Ken Griffey Jr. Uh, so, think about that. Right. That's 20 years. 20 years. Um, in the National League, there have been several, but uh, Latin American players or Hispanic players are not. Uh, voted MVP in the National League. So I, I looked at this because I said, wait, this is something going on here? And, and how, this seems... Well, it turns out that the evidence suggests there's not. One of the reasons that you just suggested, so in the, in the uh, American League, integration efforts were much slower than in the National League. All of the black superstars, most of them, I mean, with apologies to, to, to uh, folks like Reggie Jackson and things, they were in the National League. Was the first African-American to win an MVP award Frank Robinson in the American League? Who was initially a, a national? Oh, Ellie Howard won one before then, I guess. Elson Howard, nineteen sixty-three. Um, Probably in sixty-six. Oh, did Larry Larry Doby Doby won yeah. an award? Okay, so bad example. It was Larry, Larry Doby. No, but but you're right. I mean, uh, another reason that African Americans weren't winning awards in the, in the American League, by the way, was because the award was being passed around the New York Yankees clubhouse. Right. right. You know, from the mid forties to the mid sixties, they were claiming a pennant. Well, 
we know that the yeah, MVP goes to have black winning state, and they didn't have black players. They didn't have black but, but, but this is this is, and, and I want to go back to yeah. Ukraine for a second. But one so last thought on this: it's 1974, which is one of the worst awards. Two white guys get it, undeserving. And you have a quote in your book by Lou Brock, yes, who I don't think deserved the MVP that won the National League. I probably would have gone with Joe Morgan, who was also African American. But yeah. one wonders whether there's a racial undertone. Two white guys got it, and clearly there were African American players who were more deserving. And Reggie Jackson, in particular the American League, was not an uncontroversial figure. Joe Morgan kind of was. He was kind of... You know. Yeah, no, Joe... And, and, and you are absolutely right. They're, they're Lou Brock, he didn't openly charge racism, but he seethed over what he saw was this, was this number. But other players have. You know, other players have, have openly... Roberto Clemente famously thought that uh, race or bigotry was behind his poor showing in some of the... MVP and he made it right. And he may, he may have been right, because you have to remember Roberto Clemente. Well, this is the time Roberto Clemente was of Puerto Rican heritage, uh, and when sports writers would quote Roberto Clemente, they would make him sound like the Speedy Gonzalez character right, right. from Bugs Bunny. Big would be spelled B-E-E-G. Yeah. B-E-E-G. I heat the ball uh, very right. hard. Yeah, I run fast, uh, you know, like the wind. You know, the thing, it was just... Uh, and and I'm, I'm doing the sports writers. That's not right, me. Right, right. That's not my... So... Um, You're not going to call him a bad hombre. I will not <laughs> call him a bad hombre. Um, Roberto Clemente is what, a kind of sainted figure in baseball. He's a saint. He's a secular saint. That's right. And but he openly wondered. Pedro Martinez, as recently, ninety nine, right? the nineteen ninety nine award, and Pedro Martinez published his autobiography last year, two thousand fifteen. He still openly questioned whether his Dominican heritage. Now, it it's, it seems far fetched because Pedro Martinez actually lost the MVP vote to. Uh, a guy with Puerto Rican heritage, um, so it wasn't as if they, you know, the the, the writers were were choosing which uh, you know Latin American heritage they were going with. I don't right. think it had anything to do with. But he openly wondered. He openly wondered. Um, and it's nobody really knows what lurks in the hearts and minds of of, of the individual. And but, and again, MLB creates this problem, right? It's the same with the Hall of Fame voting because they don't own, they don't own this themselves, right? So they on steroids, for example, they pass the buck to the Hall of Fame because they don't want to want to wrestle with it. Kasia, I want, I want to um, go back to you because we're going to... Can I ask yeah, a please, question? Please. Yeah. Um, so are there many players who are so controversial that people, even today, still believe that they shouldn't receive the awards? So the, there are absolutely players who have not received an award based on... I don't want to say their politics, but let's certainly say their personality. Let's certainly say their personality. Over, interspersed with politics. It could be interspersed with politics, for sure. But So I am, I'm immediately thinking, so I don't think t- today it would be difficult because uh, player personalities are actively managed. Every player wants to be a brand today. So you don't get the same uh, kind of outlandish characters in baseball. In other sports you, you can, but in baseball you don't. Um, but... You know who I'm thinking of, Lincoln? I'm thinking of the 1995 MVP vote when Mo Vaughn yes. was voted MVP over a vastly more deserving Albert Bell. Right. Albert Bell was a loathsome character. I never met the man. This was, just the, this was the, the portrait that was painted of Albert Bell in the media accounts of the day, but he was universally reviled by the press. And it's because he treated people very poorly, at least based on what I read about Albert Bell. Um, he was... Despised. There's no other way to put it. Uh, it was not a secret. It was out in the open. When Mo Vaughn accepted the MVP award, he kind of did it with humility, and, and he was almost sheepish about it. And he said, 
Well, it just goes to show you that being nice counts. If you don't believe that, ask Barry Bonds. And Barry Bonds, with the Hall of Fame, yes. But it didn't hurt him with MVP voting. Did it help him in 1992? Well, he won it in 92. The 91. 91. Um, no, Barry Bonds won seven. He probably could have won ten. Right. MVPs could have won ten. Um, that's a really... Barry Bonds is an excellent example, though, of the whole the personality-driven type of, of uh, bias. So Barry Bonds... I don't know if he was as a beloved figure. If, 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 if Barry Bonds had the personality and was as beloved as... Barry Bonds is, is on, in terms of the numbers he put up, the best player of the last 40 years. Arguably the best player, really. I mean, One of the four best ever. Ruth and Mays and Bonds are the maybe three Hans best Wagner. players. And may, yeah, and maybe Wagner. And if, if you consider players legit before 1947, right. which many people, right. including myself, maybe don't. But, but I would say Barry Bonds is an excellent example of uh, if Barry Bonds was as beloved as, you know, uh, say, Kirby Puckett during his playing days, not post-career yeah. Kirby Puckett. Yeah. Um, but if he was a Kirby Puckett figure, is he in the Hall of Fame? Is the steroids yes, kind of swept of under the rug? Of course he is. But I, I want to actually follow up with your, because you raise a good question. So just this week, and we're going to be a little timely here, the Los Angeles Dodgers and the Chicago Cubs are playing in the playoffs, right? And it came out that the Los Angeles Dodgers, they have a star first baseman, a guy named Adrian Gonzalez, who's a pretty good ball player. Not an MVP candidate, but a, a very good Solid. ball player. And it came out that he, when the team traveled, he's Mexican-American, and he has roots, I believe, in Southern California. Yes. So he's a local, I think in San Diego, right? So he's a local guy, obviously very, you know, this is involved with the community, you know, he's beloved, beloved out in L.A. And um, when they traveled to Chicago in the middle of the season to play the Cubs, they stayed at a Trump hotel. And he refused to stay there. Because Trump, in his view, and correctly, is a bigot, and does not like Mexicans, and he didn't, and the team did not stay there. Will not stay there during the playoffs. Now, a, a generation ago, this would have hurt Adrian Gonzalez. Today it helps them, May, on the one hand because the candidate in question is so reviled, mm -hmm. but also because the demographics of the people writing about this have changed. Now, what, what I would, the questions I would raise is if we look at guys like Chipper Jones. Mm. Chipper Jones, great ball player, won one MVP award, and I forget the year, it was one of those years the Braves won the pennant. Chipper Jones is a right-wing nut, I mean, uh, to use a technical term. He tweets things, <laughs> racist things against Mexicans. He tweets conspiracy theories about Jack, uh, the Kennedy assassination. I mean, in the 21st century, if you're still tweeting, if you're tweeting at all about the Kennedy assassination, and I think that if that had been known about Chipper Jones then, in this climate, a player with Jones' numbers and that tweeting could not win the MVP award. And that, that speaks to how it's changed because the politics have, you know, it's no longer the outspoken person of color. It's the racist white guy. You could, you could yeah. very well be right. And, and it's interesting because back in the day, so you know what I'm thinking? I'm thinking of Dick Allen. Yeah, well, that's I thought you were going to go there right away. Right. Dick Allen was, it wasn't so much about his politics, but he was an outspoken African-American playing in the 70s, and in the 60s and 70s, came up in the 60s and 70s. He was uh, a Hall of Fame caliber talent who it just didn't put, didn't, his career just wasn't long enough um, for him to eventually make the Hall of Fame, but he certainly was one of the better hitters of the 20th century by, by any measure. But Dick <laughs> Allen was absolutely raked over the coals by the press. And it was because he was a black man who just didn't feel like he needed to, to play your game. Right. Um, he was a, he was a, a, a smart guy, a self-possessed guy. Um, Reggie Jackson, actually, because Reggie Jackson played on a bigger stage, 
they were comparative in terms of personality. They were slight. They were kind of comparable. Um, both brash and both. Uh, Reggie just played on a bigger stage, and Reggie had a better sense of humor. I think was was so the writers. They loved Reggie as a character and as right. a foil. And he he was, but he wasn't. They didn't dislike Reggie really as as a as a, and, as a human being. And, and you know, the, we're not talking about we're talking about MVP awards, yeah. not Cy Young awards. Yeah. But but there is a tangential story about Cy Young, which goes to the best pitcher in the league. But mm-hmm. three times Cy Young award winner was a teammate of Dick Allen's named Steve Carlton, and Steve Carlton was a guy who for the last <laughs> ten years of his career never never spoke to the media. And once he You're did, we all wished he, he did. Wish he, had <laughs> he gave an interview after the Hall of Fame where he blamed all the problems of the world on twelve Jewish bankers. In yeah, he was a white. He he was, he was a pretty, hor- pretty horrible. He was a, a, a pretty detestable uh, character, but a great man. pitcher. All right, a great pitcher. Yeah, Scott, I want to go back to to Ukraine for a moment from from Steve. But no, this is a good link because um, uh, we're we're winding down this presidential election unless I. I can't, I don't want to. I mean, Hillary Clinton's going to win. She's going to be the next president. Uh, and I know this now because my mother called me today to discuss the debate. She lives in California. And she called me to discuss the debate. And at the end of the call, said, Well, I'm no longer worried. Let's just get this over with. So if my mother is no longer worried, I think we're in good shape. <laughs> but, um, and we certainly have two presidents who would approach Russia and Ukraine, I mean, two candidates, dramatically differently. I mean, I assume that Donald Trump would, would call, have his people call with Putin and figure out what he should do. Um, that's probably not the best way we should make policy in the United States. He's probably not going to win. Hillary Clinton probably is. And she is somebody who has enormous amount of experience in foreign policy. She knows this region well. She has, but, but she also has, you know, the world has changed since he was Secretary of State. The world has certainly changed since he was First Lady and even in the U.S. Senate. What would you tell the next American president, both about Ukraine, but also what are the, the kind of bigger picture challenges in the post-Soviet space that, that she needs to be thinking about? Well, we're not talking about Trump, so he's yeah, Let's focus on Clinton, because the Trump is this point. Yeah. Um, I think she's very knowledgeable about the region to begin with, because I was at her speech in Ukraine in 2013, before the revolution, before everybody started paying attention to Ukraine, and... She addressed, you know, the big crowd at the summit. She seemed to be aware of so many things about Ukraine that a regular politician from America would not know. So, I think that she doesn't need a lot more information. But I would advise her, if I may, I don't know that she listens to the podcast, <laughs> to treat Ukraine as a separate country, not just as an attachment to. Russia and, uh, you know, the U.S.-Russia geopolitical situation. Because at the end, I think all these countries that used to be part of the Soviet Union, they will become separate entities. People would not be speaking Russian in, like, Kazakhstan or in Georgia or in Ukraine, probably not as quickly as in Georgia. But they, they are on the way to become separate states. And if these countries can have independent relationship with Europe and with the United States, that would be probably the course that I would envision for, for those countries. In any way, in like economic cooperation or any kind of supporting policies or even for Ukraine, for instance, to fight for democracy so hard as Ukraine did in 2013-2014 when in America, a lot of people don't even really appreciate democracy and the rights that people have, or in Europe. 
that would be like an example of something that would remind that these are our values, you know, maybe we are so used to having them, but then there is a place where people still fresh and they still appreciate having freedoms and having the rights to do all these things that we can do in democratic countries. So if American government, including Hillary when she becomes the president, would not just look at Ukraine and other countries from the post-Soviet Union um, territory just as part of the game, you know, the standoff, we have to help them because Russia wants to grab them, but they would also treat them as separate entities. I think that would be a more productive way for both states. Uh, two questions, two separate but maybe related questions. First one regarding Ukraine is, do you think that the United States and, and or maybe Western Europe um, should have played a more active role in the uh, what's colloquially known as the Ukrainian crisis since 2014? Um, did, did, did NATO essentially make a mistake in, in not establishing kind of the, that line in the sand um, against Russia. And then the second part, which is somewhat related, is in a, in a looking over the next four years, are there areas of cooperation, natural alignment between the United States and Russia, um, where it's not just strictly an adversarial relationship? Do you, do you think there are opportunities for, for the two countries to lead together in, in one particular area or another? I think they've tried plenty of times over the past years, but at this moment, Unless it's just between the people, not on the state level, I can't imagine what kind of cooperation it can be simply because you can't trust Russia. You know, you can say, let's cooperate in the world of technology or nanotechnology or something. It's still just another way for Russia to penetrate the Western system and mess with whatever they want to mess with. And about um, influence and involvement in Ukraine, I think that, which is still not clear to me, we had the Budapest Memorandum, which was kind of dismissed when Ukraine, um, in 1994, when Ukraine um, gave up nuclear weapons, three countries, Russia, Ukraine, and uh, Britain, they signed this Budapest Memorandum where they said that, you know, if there is any threat to Ukrainian, uh, Ukraine's territorial integrity, then they would help. Basically, one of the countries invaded and annexed <laughs> territories, and two other countries, they were sympathetic, but they didn't step in, they didn't protect Ukraine from something that was very clear. Let's say we it took a while for the West to admit, not admit, but at least openly accept the idea that Russia invaded Ukraine in the eastern part, in Donbass, but it was very clear with Crimea. They came and grabbed... But uh, I, this this leads me to, to a question for you, um, which is that, to, to me, it's very clear in in both Crimea and in the Donbass region, that, that Russia was acting aggressively and seeking to annex or destabilize or disrupt uh, Ukraine. But, and and I, you know, I don't get secret memos from the Obama administration, but they're not dumb. They know what's going on, right? And certainly our members of, of Congress and, and others do, not all of them, but, but you know. They f I mean, and, the official version, that's what I meant. Of course, well, they But the do. official version, yeah, people know what's going on, mm -hmm. right? The, the, the question that comes to my mind, and this is very frustrating to me as an analyst, as someone who tries to write when I'm not writing about baseball, you know, sometimes serious things about this part of the world, is that the, there's no question that if you ask, and, and Trump is muddying the waters here in a weird way, but most Americans understand that Putin's a pretty bad guy. I don't think you'd get much controversy about that. People don't think he's our friend. And your question about where we can work together, I think there's a sense that those areas are shrinking. 
and to few and fewer of them with every passing year and month and everything like that. But the, the challenge for the U.S., as I see it, and, and this is in the form of a question for you, is what is it that we can do? Not is it that, you know, let's get away from the language of should or would like. It's no doubt in my mind that Hillary Clinton would like to find a way to help Ukraine. Mm-hmm. And, and, and moreover, there's no doubt in my mind, and I think I'm right, that Hillary Clinton would like to get Ukraine into NATO. Like she would see that if she, in 2024, if Ukraine's a member of NATO, that will be something that Hillary Clinton will be proud of in her if she managed to serve two terms as, as President of the United States. So that's where her kind of policy preference lies, and that's where her heart lies, and she'd be very happy if Russia got out of Ukraine, right? But had, what are the tools that an American president has to get from here to there? Well, I think the country itself needs, at first... Which country? Ukraine. Okay. It needs to get, like, its business together, because uh, right now the IMF is giving Ukraine money, we don't know if reforms are really going well, if you're going to give weapons or like, you know, lethal weapons to Ukraine, what's going to happen? Who's going to be in charge of them? You know, I think all these things, they really play some role in how the West ended up not helping Ukraine. Also, the public opinion. I don't know the recent polls about the NATO, but I don't think people were that excited about joining. So that needs to be addressed and it's going to take a while. And I think that's where the whole you know, writing history comes, because if Ukraine is capable of writing history that shows progress after the revolution, and that's where I think the Western partners can play a big role, because they can force, I mean, of course something has to happen from within, but by not giving money to these corrupt or allegedly corrupt hands, by making them to meet certain milestones before they get some extra help, maybe that will be another push for the country to get out of this strange messiness where it is. Because there are younger people right now in Ukraine who are willing to make the country better. But the people in charge are still old-school politicians who maybe they're halfway good, halfway bad, but they're still basically minding their business and pursuing their own interests. Their own interests. And if bigger partners like the United States can influence it in some way where they just... You know, that you're not going to get this chunk of money unless you do this, you know, electronic declaration for the taxes, for whatever. So if that's somehow played, maybe eventually Ukraine will get to the place where Hillary can say, let's join the NATO. But right now, if somebody comes and says, let's join the NATO, it might be a little premature. So it's a long time. If she's going to be there for eight years, hopefully... Thinking from what I understand, if, if Ukraine were to somehow, and that is some time away, although that was the stated goal several yes. years ago, um, I mean, that would, Russia would consider that a serious provocation, would it not? Yeah. Yes and no. I mean, in, in, in my view, Russia does, and I will, we can talk about Georgia in this framework as well, because they're in a very similar situation, although not entirely the same, but Russia would consider Georgian membership in NATO or uh, Ukrainian membership of NATO as, as, as a problem, but they consider Georgia and Ukraine wanting to get into NATO as a problem. So I'm not convinced, or I don't believe the U.S. should make policy based on things that Russia might be afraid of. Right? To me, it's a better approach that, okay, if this is what these countries want, that's, that's the issue we should be addressing. Now, where I think you, your point should be taken well is that we can't be surprised when Russia gets angry at us. Right? But it's already angry. But it's already angry, right? So in 2008, this is what was, we were really, I mean, I think that the Georgia-Russia war in 2008, we're getting very much in the weeds here. 
that caught people more by surprise than it should have. We should have known that what we said in Budapest in the summer of 2008 was going to create problems in Moscow. But those problems are out there. Georgia and Ukraine want to be independent states. They want to chart their own foreign policy. They want to start chart their own trade policy. All the things that independent states do. Russia's not happy about that. And making whether or not they're slightly more happy or slightly less happy, I don't know that that's how the West and, and, and an American president should craft foreign policy. Agreed, obviously. Um, I know, I wasn't trying yeah, to... Yeah, I know, I was retorting, but yeah. Right. But I think that, that's how, one way to think about it, perhaps. Do you... So, so I know we've kind of teased out some questions, but I want to give you two an opportunity to talk to each other with some questions. This is often the, the, the funnest part of the show. But I confess, I, I just asked one of my questions. Me too. Um, <laughs> but, but there was, and in fact, I, I kind of touched on, on another one earlier, so I guess uh, I'll go to my third one. So I'd asked about the opportunities for cooperation, and, and that seems, uh, unfortunately, uh, this esteemed panel that I'm sitting with does, doesn't see too <laughs> many, at least under the, current, under the current um, uh, regime. Um, and we asked about Putin's endgame. Uh, I wonder then, so the, one of the things that, that uh, struck me during, and I'll just touch a little bit on the on the current election cycle here in the United States, is uh, Putin, he was never persona non grata, but he just was not at the top of America's list of, 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 of boogeymen. Um, certainly, let's say, four years ago, although Mitt Romney correctly kind of called it, you know, we'll give, right. we'll give him credit, he did. Um, but he has been, he has interjected himself, but he's also been co-opted into this, uh, election, obviously, by both sides. And I wonder, um, are we giving him too much credit and credence, or it, does he really represent kind of, if you listen to, to Hillary Clinton, she doesn't say that he's an existential threat, but that he's a thorn in our side that needs to be addressed and watched. Um, Donald Trump says, hey, we should be working with this guy, we'll, and we'll take all the oils again. You know, and he doesn't realize that Russia is a petrol state. I think he's just, you know. So where, uh, where, where realistically does does Putin kind of fit into the firmament in terms of, of, of like global threats and, and and things like that? I mean, I think he is a threat. I think he's a bully. He may not escalate the conflict to the point of a hot war, even though it looks like it almost every day. There is some yeah. something that indicates that things are getting worse and worse. But I. Hope maybe it's my wishful thinking that he's not as insane, or he's he's not alone. He still has a bunch of people yeah. who are advising him, or he's a group. So maybe they together are not as crazy as it might seem. But he's definitely a bully, and he's not leaving anybody alone. And I don't really understand the motivation of somebody who already seems like you know he has a good job, he has <laughs> money, <laughs> but making. Everybody around him kind of threatened and miserable. Maybe that's the thrill. Because his own people in his own country are, you know, their level of living, quality of life is going down every day. What are his approval ratings, do you know, within A little Russia? bit lower, 74%. Oh, my God. No, but do we, and we think that's a, that's a legitimate number? Is that's that, a legitimate number, but, you know... Is that what's driving his... Public opinion data in unfree media environments right. need to be understood with some nuance. I'm not going to say that they're meaningless, but it's a little more complicated. I mean, the, the story that people, their media is not free, and that 
obviously affects the information that people get and on which they base judgments. So it may very well be, yeah, it may very well be a 74% approval rating, but it's based on uh, the quality of information that they're getting. But also I think people in Russia are accustomed to saying, but who else? If not who else, there's nobody else. We need a strong hand. And that's kind of like a mantra that keeps even the most liberal people think that he might be okay for now. Well, and And, and there is this, you know, we often think, gosh, we'll get rid of Putin. But we're not going to get the nice liberal. It could right. get, it can, oh, a, a, an important lesson of the last... Khrushchev's almost 90 now, right? He's right. not coming back. <laughs> the important <laughs> lesson of the last 100 years is it can always get worse. Yeah. And if you're sitting in Russia, that lesson has been beaten into you pretty, you know, the decades have shown you that. Now, is, is Putin's, uh, is, he's, he's outrageously brazen. Yeah. Okay. Syria is gamesmanship at, 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 I mean, that is not a thorn in the side. That, that potentially could escalate into something um, quite ominous, okay, uh, as, as, as we all know. Uh, and he is essentially daring the United States to, to, to kind of step up. Um, and I wonder, is, is this because uh, this is what the Russian people react to strongly, that they want to see this kind of fearlessness in a leader or... or uh, because it just doesn't make sense to me. I, I can't possibly see how, how they could come out. I don't see how Russia could possibly win in this situation unless he decides that he's just going to blow everything up. But I think we can only guess, but uh, I think there are two things happening there. One is this kind of macho, strong image that's supposed to impress local people and also militarizing life in the country on all levels, like mm-hmm. schools, everywhere, parades and stuff. It's all to evoke that sense of pride and strong country that's getting from its knees, like this whole... Make Russia great again. Make Russia great again. He's already made Russia great again. But I think another thing is that he's trying to do in the world of the international uh, politics, he wants to be back in the game. He was Mm -hmm. kicked out for a little bit. Now Syria brought him back. You know, he shakes hands with the world leaders again. I think it's for him more than for... Because his people already see that he's powerful. They have tanks, you know, and stuff. And nuclear weapons, but that's probably something that he, he personally silly to say that because we don't know. But it looks like it's more his pride. I want to be back in the game. I want to have meetings with people like Obama. I don't know what he's going to do with Hillary now. But if he's back in the game, he has to <laughs> and, deal and, with and her. This, this is also. I mean, there is a kind of oddness to this because Hillary Clinton was always going to win this election. I mean, I, I don't. I mean, the the numbers just never added up for for anybody but a very unusual Republican candidate. I mean, not unusual in the sense of of inarticulate and fascistic, but unusual in the sense of being able to expand the coalition. And never number can add up for Donald Trump. Yeah. So he spent a lot of political capital in, on backing a losing horse. I don't know how that how that ends well for for Putin. And I don't think it makes things easier for Hillary Clinton when she takes office in January, for sure. No, and I wonder if if Putin actually. When you say expending political capital backing this candidate, I wonder if he even considered it in those terms. Uh, maybe for him, it's just sticking it to the U.S. by by. I, I don't think you should underestimate that. Yeah, that is a big yeah. deal. And remember that if we look at Ukraine, excuse me, Putin in Ukraine, the reason he's been able to have the upper hand there is he's trying to break something. The, the government keeps trying to. It's always hard to build something to right. break yeah, something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, it's always hard to put the toothpaste back in the tube. He's trying to squirt it out everywhere. Don't care, you know. So so it just. That's what he's doing here. He's creating problems. It, it, it weakens the United States. It's good for him. Katya, do you have a baseball 
question. Well, I don't have a specific question about the subject that you discussed altogether, but coming from the region where, from the territory where, I don't think we even have baseball mm. as a game in like post-Soviet countries in Eastern Europe. I don't think that that's a big game. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm just curious, in America, is it the sport? Because I know there is... a great question. You know, we, we, we touched on this a little bit earlier before we started yes. the podcast. And the, the baseball used to be the game. It's hard to overstate the popularity, the ubiquity of baseball in the first half of the 20th century. It was, uh, well, I, I hate to use the cliche, but in many cases, it was the only game in town, so to speak. It didn't really have any competition in terms of cultural relevance, with the exception, perhaps, of boxing. Boxing was very popular in the United States uh, through the 1950s or so, 60s, and, and had its heyday with Muhammad Ali, obviously, and things like that. But baseball has kind of been on this, this uh, uh, decline in relevance for several decades now. And there, there's lots of different reasons. And, and, and Lincoln, actually, I'll throw it to you to, to talk about some of them because we, we were talking about it earlier. But, but one of the things is just that the demographics of the country have been changing and, and, and other sports have been marketed more properly or, or I should say more effectively um, to... Uh, these the changing demographics, the youth demographic, the inner city demographics, to, to, to use an old-fashioned term. Um, but, uh, you know, baseball was, for a long time, kind of uh, the, the white suburban game. That's what it was. And it, and it lost kind of the, the uh, uh, multicultural, uh, you know, urban kind of uh, recruit, so to speak. You know, young kids were playing basketball and football and soccer. Don't Let's not discount soccer as well. So... Soccer took the white suburban kind of contingent. Um, but these are kind of simplistic terms that I'm using. Um, I don't want to wait. I'm going to answer this a little bit. I'm also going to suggest if you want to, anyone listening, you want to hear, read more about this, my book, Will Big League Baseball Survive, will be out in about a week or so from uh, Temple University Press, and I address a lot of these, these issues. It's interesting. Baseball has more attendance than ever, by far. More people are going to ballparks than ever, by far. Uh, more people are paying to see Clayton Kershaw, they never paid to see Lefty Grove pitch, for example. Right? It was a great pitcher of the 19, late 20s and 1930s. Television ratings are solid but, but unspectacular. It is, however, not played by the kids the way it was, but it is, and, and there's more money, and the baseball players make more money than players in other sports. It is not front and center of the American culture the way it was. And there, unlike, it wasn't just other sports, it was everything else. I mean, I was talking, my father's 82 years old, my father went to a baseball game in 19... has not been to a Major League Baseball any baseball game. I think he saw my son pitch once since 1982. Before that, probably the 1960s, the early 60s. He's not a baseball fan. And he... When I called him to... Dis, I think it was to wish him a Happy New Year. as Rosh Hashanah or something. You know, asking where, you know, he got talking about where he was in the radio with his father listening to the 1944 World Series. And he remembered who was playing. And my father is neither a big sports fan. I mean, Dad, I love you, but not the best memory in the world either, right? And he, that is the way it permeated people's consciousness. We refer to 1941 Most Valuable Player Race, where they've got Joe DiMaggio and his hitting streak, where every day for 56 games he got a hit. This is an extraordinary accomplishment. People then, the, you would, on your way home from school, from work, you would stop and ask, did DiMaggio get his hit today? You would rip open the evening paper to see that. Now, that has changed, but what has kept, what, it, what baseball has going for it is there is no sport in America, and maybe in the world, that has 
as deep a literary history. Literature, not just literature as a fiction, but the written word. People who are, you know, extraordinary writers, people writing different angles, writing books that are read by people who aren't particularly baseball fans. So it has that. And increasingly, in the world of big data, right, we, we, we are in a world where whether you're talking about politics or marketing, big data, there's no sport and very few human endeavors that lend themselves to data. One example is, in a typical baseball game, there will be, roughly speaking, 280 pitches thrown. 280 times the pitcher takes the ball and throws it to home plate, and 140 per team. You multiply that by 162 games times 15 teams, because each, you know, there's 30 teams, but, you know, two teams in each game, and the answer is you have a lot of pitches thrown, right? And each pitch. And each pitch, what happens on each pitch is documented. It, it, and you can run the numbers on it. How many pitches were hit over the course of the season to left field rather than right field, right? And, and that's, so, so if you're in a world where we are increasingly taught to think about big data. It is so rich in big data. But I, I wonder if you ask, in terms of its relevance, cultural relevance. Uh, it's is, not close. There's and is, is part of it, so baseball has this great literary tradition. It's also the only sport, and they're trying to change it. And, and, and quite frankly, I don't think it needs to be changed in this regard. But baseball trades on its history and nostalgia more than any other sport. And it markets its past more than it markets its present. And I think... Perhaps that kind of caught up with it over the last 25 or 30 years. Whereas the NFL and the NBA, they're about creating stars and creating brands. And, it, and it's not, baseball is maybe not as TV friendly to watch, perhaps, as uh, the NBA might be, uh, because it's just a much more confined space. And, um, you know, baseball, when you go to a baseball game, baseball's so much better in person. So you mentioned that more people are going to see baseball games than ever before. It's because it's the best experience in the world, because you, you see the scale and the colors and the sounds and the smells. Football's better on TV. Football's much better to watch on TV. It's too, it's too complicated to follow live. Um, and I just wonder if baseball continues to kind of market itself if it markets its past rather than marketing its present, if it's, it's just going to continuously kind of lose its, its uh, place in the and, culture. And, and one last point on this, and this may be relevant for, for you, because if I may say so on the podcast, you're a new mother of, of, of a baby girl, right? Congratulations. So, so baseball, where it was ahead of the curve in America on race in 1947, mm -hmm. is behind the curve on gender. So little girls in America, and then they grow up to be bigger girls and then young women, they don't play baseball. They play a feminized version of the game, which has roots in sexism of the early 20th, early 20th century. You're referring to softball. Softball. Softball is a great game. I'm not saying that, but it's not baseball. And the problem is they don't become fans, right? Basketball is women play basketball, girls play basketball, girls watch basketball. 2014, the United States women's team won the World Cup in soccer, right? Mm -hmm. This was a, if you like soccer, this is a big deal. More people in America watch that game than the final game of the World Series. Now, I don't think that means baseball is over, but I do know that that number would not be true if little girls played baseball and were allowed to play baseball and encouraged to play baseball. I buy it. I do. I buy that. Um, softball is unwatchable. 
It's unwatchable. It's a di- and it's a different game. It's unwatchable. It's just a different pace, uh, a different type. And, you know, there's a lot of good. I mean, you know, Jennifer Ring. Uh, I think. It, oh, it has, has nothing to do with the athletes themselves. Right. No, it's a Jennifer Ring at University yes. of Nevada Reno has written extensively about this and very about the challenges that girls face when they try to play baseball. The ch- the sexism from the coaches, yeah. from the other players, and it gets worse if they're good. So with the, not if they get not if they're not good, but if they're good, it gets worse. With the female president, it might. Change. Yes, and Hillary Clinton is, I believe, before she moved for, and ran for the Senate in New York in 2000, she was a Cubs fan. She still is. She still is not a Yankee fan. She briefly said she's flirted with the Yankees. I think Hillary may... Oh, don't quote me. She may have actually been consistent on this position. <laughs> I think her heart... We know, we know, I we know where her heart would... Is, I is. absolutely remember her wearing a Cubs cap. Um, I, I believe, certainly 2012 at that point. But, you know, she's running against... Uh, a, a true blue Chicago icon in Obama who is right, obviously white who is a White Sox fan. Right. Um, so, um, yeah, we, we shall see. Um, the Cubs are a historic franchise that every 108 years if things go well win the World Series. They've won since 1908. So, um, thank you, Katya. Thank you, Jeremy. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you again for listening to Episode 7 of Painting the Corners. Again, if you want... To hear more from Katya, follow her on Twitter at KSSG. Jeremy is on Twitter at Jeremy underscore Lehrman, L-E-H-R-M-A-N. And you can follow me on Twitter at Lincoln Mitchell. Now, I want to answer the trivia question because I told you that I would. So this player was a teammate in the early 1960s. He played on the New York Yankees at that time. And he was a teammate of Mickey Mantle, who had won the Most Valuable Player Award in 1956 and 1957, so two consecutive years in the 50s. He also was the teammate at that time of Roger Maris, who, as you probably know, won in 1960 and 1961. Later in his career, he was with the Houston Astros in 1969, where there was a second baseman on that team named Joe Morgan, who went on to win the Most Valuable Player Award from 19, in 1975 and 1976 with, Houston, with the Cincinnati Reds. And then at the very end of his career, he ended up as player on the Atlanta Braves, where his we had a teammate there named Dale Murphy, who went on to win the MVP. That was in 78. He was on the Braves with Dale Murphy, who went on to win the Most Valuable Player Award for the National League in 1982 and 1983. And if you haven't gotten it yet, the answer to the question is Jim Bowden.